0: Hey guys, this is Tom from the Philly Young Adults Podcast. We wanted to take a moment to let you guys know that we have started working on Season 4. We're super excited about it and we're hoping to get that content out to you as soon as possible. But in the meantime, we hope that these past sessions from our Philly Young Adults Conference are a blessing to you. And as always, if you're located in the greater Philadelphia area, we'd love to extend an invitation out to you to come to our in-person gathering where we study the Bible and worship the Lord together. You can go to phillyyoungadults.com for more information about all these things. Thanks, guys, and be talking to you soon. The two big misconceptions that I want to deal with, I think dangerous misconceptions having to do with understanding God's will and how it works out in our life is, number one, the idea of God's will being a path for my life. And if I get off that path, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm lost for the rest of my life. So like when I was, you know, when you were 18 and you were agonizing, oh God, what college do you want me to go to? What college do you want me to go to? Is it this one or that one? Well, you know what? You picked the wrong one. Forget it, man. You're off God's path. You're off God's will for the rest of your life. That's it. You know, uh, this, 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 uh, person, usually, usually, uh, when people want to know God's will for their life, uh, it, it, that can be code word for they want relationship guidance or advice. You know, oh, what's it going to be? What's it going to And if you pick the wrong one, forget it, man. You're toast for the rest of your life. That's it. You pick wrong. I, I believe that that is a harmful way of thinking about God's will. And it's a very, it's a way that really amplifies the pressure. Upon you. I gotta get this right, or my life is ruined if I figure out, if I make the wrong choice about what God's will is. The other big misconception I think people have about God's will is they think that um, if I do, if I pick God's will for my life, that it will mean my life goes pretty smooth. That difficulty and pain in life comes from not going in God's will for your life. Now, can we agree that there is difficulty and pain in your life that comes in your life from not going God's will? Absolutely. But you really need to understand this. I mean, I think you do, but it's, it's worth me repeating it. You can be 100% in God's will and still be having a very tough time at something. It's not this idea that if you're in God's will, everything goes smooth. Not at all. I love the illustration from the Gospels where Jesus specifically directed the disciples to get into a boat and to go into the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and they came into a life-threatening storm along the way. They were totally in God's will. They were doing what Jesus told them to do, and they were still in a life-threatening storm. So this idea that if you're in God's will, it preserves you from discomfort and pain, it's not true. There's going to be a measure of that that you're going to have to deal with anyway. Now, it may save you from unnecessary discomfort and pain, but you know the Bible, and this is kind of something that we need to regain in the Christian world and the Christian life, is come to a better theology of suffering. I think this has really been neglect- neglected in Christian circles. Really, people don't really get it that God has an appointed place for affliction and suffering in our life. And it's not because he hates us, it's because he loves us. Uh, but again, we, we, we do a really good job, and when I say we, I mean me, of preserving ourselves from as much discomfort and pain as possible. I mean, that's kind of a life strategy I have. Um, but... There are times and places where God permits it, and it's for good. It's not for evil. Okay, let's get to this idea of God's will. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. Okay, just stop right there. We'll get into verse two in just a minute. So you have this amazing idea in Romans chapter 12 that comes, of course, after 11 chapters of Paul laying out this marvelous doctrinal system. Romans is one of the most remarkable books in the New Testament because it's one of the books that Paul wrote that was not trying to fix problems at a church, off the top of my head, there's only two letters of Paul in the New Testament that are like that, Uh, Romans and Ephesians, Um, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Colossians, Philippians, uh, 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, all of them them were written to try to fix problems. There's problems going on, man, we got to fix this, Paul's going to speak to it. Romans and Ephesians are different. They really weren't written to fix particular problems, but to teach about God's big truth and his big plan of the ages. And Romans does this in a brilliant way. I mean, chapter after chapter, the first three chapters, or actually I could say the first two and a half chapters of Romans, spell out the problem. Uh, Beginning in the middle of chapter three, he begins to start spelling out the solution what God has done for us in Jesus Christ and how we can receive it by faith and by faith alone. Then Romans chapters five, six, seven, and eight. Sometimes I think that that is just the core of the core of the Christian life. Man, I tell you, you you want to understand the Christian life in a deep and a profound way, you give yourself to study and deep thought about Romans chapters five, six, seven, and eight. It's all these marvelous truths about what we have and who we are and what God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Then you get into Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 where Paul's dealing with a the theological problem and the theological problem is, well now wait a minute, you've just told us in the first eight chapters of Romans how, uh, Romans, how amazing God is and how God will never forsake his people but it seems to me like maybe God forsook Israel. Talk about that, Paul. So in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul's explaining how, even though it might seem that God forsake Israel, he hasn't. And he's working it all out according to his plan. Okay, so that's 9, 10, 11. Starting Romans chapter 12, now he gets into the last section of the book where he's talking about practical living. In light of everything that we've heard, in light of all that we have, all that Jesus Christ has done for us in light of his never-ending and never-failing plan for his people and for Israel, all of that combined, how are we supposed to live? Look at it again, chapter 12, verse one. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, by everything that God has done for you throughout. And by the way, did you notice, I beseech you? Uh, Man, talk about kind of an archaic word, you know. I beseech you, dear fellow, you know, can you fetch me? I don't know, something like that. What what does it mean to beseech? It means to beg. I'm begging you. I am begging you to do something. What's Paul begging us to do? Look at it there in verse 1. That you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You surrender to God. You surrender to God in your body. I'm fascinated by why Paul wrote that. Well, Obviously, he wrote it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I'm not acting like this is Paul and not God speaking. No, this is God speaking, but he's speaking through the apostle Paul. Why did God ordain and guide Paul to use that word bodies? I I think this is why. Why didn't he say, uh, present your soul a living sacrifice to God? Why did he say, present your spirit, a living sacrifice to God? Why didn't he do that? I think it's because Paul understood this. Whatever you want to define and think about your soul or your spirit, they are in your body. You present your body, you're presenting the whole thing. It's all unto God. Because your soul and your spirit are included in there. Present Everything you are to God as a living sacrifice, which you have to say is almost an oxymoron. Living sacrifice? The idea of a living sacrifice in the Old Testament is almost nonsensical. Sacrifices were killed. They were slaughtered. That was the whole point of it. But no, Jesus Christ has fulfilled all that sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Now God's looking For living sacrifices, surrendered lives. And if you've ever heard somebody preach on this, they've probably used a little saying, and you know, it's a cliche, but it's a good cliche. The problem with a living sacrifice is that it can crawl off the altar. That's what it does, right? So the idea is keep presenting yourself a living sacrifice. Keep doing it. Okay, present yourself a living sacrifice. Now check this out. He says, verse one, Holy, acceptable God, which is your reasonable service. Verse 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Okay, I'm going to deal with that right now, but I just want you to pause and think about this. What does this have to do with the will of God? This is like a bait and switch. David told us he was going to talk to us about discovering the will of God, and now he's talking about, you know, the surrendered life and sanctification. You, I, I don't know if you've thought of it, you're, All right, when's he going to get to talk about with the will of God? Okay, hold on. I'm getting to that. I haven't forgotten that. But notice what he says here in verse 2. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I can tell you how huge this is. The world out there demands that we conform to it. Now, I am not going to say that the world and the culture outside the Christian community, I'm not going to say that it's wrong about everything. There are certain places where the world gets it right. And at least in some approximate measure, they share biblical values. But that doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter for this reason is that the way the world wants us to conform unto itself, it demands everything. It's like the way that the Lord said, I'm a jealous God, you will have no other gods before me. That's kind of what the culture around us says. So if you say, I agree with you on these three points, but not the fourth, you can get just as soundly rejected as you would as if you disagreed on all four points. I like this image from the book of Daniel. Do you remember in the book of Daniel when the Jewish young men, well, forget about the Jewish young men, all the empire was demanded to bow down before this image of Nebuchadnezzar. And there were three Hebrew young men who would not do it. They refused to bow down. I see that as a picture of how we are expected to bow down before this idealized image of who we should be in this world, what we should be. The world wants to tell you, look, men, the world tells you what you should be. Now, it's not a universal message. It's like this pocket of the world tells you, you should be like this. This pocket of the world tells you, you should be like this, this. But it's out there. And they say, this is what you should be. Now, if that's true for men, come on, isn't it even more true of women? Isn't there just like this unified voice from the world that says to women, this is what you have to be Conform to this? Conform to this standard of beauty, conform to this standard of style, conform to this standard of attitude, of personality. That's it. And we are all being commanded to bow down before this statue. And it's our place as believers to have just some holy rebellion in us. I mean, look, you are a rebel by nature. And, and God can actually use that to some good effect. Because there are some things you should rebel against. And you should rebel against every effort of the world, the flesh, and the devil to get you to bow down to some stylized vision of who you should be. And instead, you should say, no, I am not going to be conformed to this world. But I'm going to be transformed. Not conformed transformed and how am i going to be transformed now i'm not saying that paul gives us the only path to transformation here in verse 2 but he gives us the predominant path to transformation in verse 2 what is the path to transformation that paul describes in verse 2 that you would be transformed by the renewing of your mind it's so funny We so little think that our minds need to be renewed. We don't usually run there. Where do we usually run? We usually run to the thought that it's my actions, my deeds that need to be renewed. Okay, do my actions need to be renewed? You better believe they do. But I'll tell you what's first. The battleground is really the mind. It's how I think. This is why effectively spending time in the Bible is so transformative. If you effectively spend time in the Bible, and what I mean, I mean reading it the way that it should be read. I I mean reading it the way we talked about last night. When you effectively read the Bible, it has a transformative work on your mind. Every day. Now, it just might be a little bit. It might just be like one little stone in a pathway that's being built that goes a long way. But it's a little bit. It's good. Day by day, stone by stone, step by step, you are building a transformed mind that begins to see the world and think about the world the way that God does. You're being transformed By the renewing of your mind. And if there's ever a need among believers today, it's a renewed mind. Sometimes the loudest voices in the Christian world show no evidence of a renewed mind. They're thinking just like the world does, just like the culture does, not the way that the scriptures would direct us to think. So, man, this gets back to this vital, vital idea of why it's important for us to read the Bible the way that it should be read, the way we talked about last night, and very much saying, I want my mind to be transformed, to be renewed, to be made new. We, we again, often so often just get back to actions. We're such a pragmatic, practical people. In some sense, this is the glory of American culture. And I'm talking about the last 200 years. When Alexis de Tocqueville came and analyzed America, one of the things he said is that they are a pragmatic people. They're all about what gets done, the action, what results in action. And in some ways in America, that's our glory, but it's also our pitfall. Sometimes we're only concerned with actions. But the transformative work of Jesus Christ has to extend to our minds. I wanna challenge you with a thought. There's some of you, many of you here today. You need to isolate sinful patterns of thinking and you need to repent of them. Repent of thinking? I wanna challenge you on that idea. Let me take you back to the day of Pentecost. Day of Pentecost. Who's preaching? Acts chapter two. Who's preaching? Peter. Who is he preaching to? You see, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The answer is so simple that you're thinking it's a trick. It's a trap. It's a trap. Who's he? Is he preaching to Jews or Gentiles? Jews. He's preaching to Jews Who are there at festival time. Some of whom were the same ones that sent Jesus to the cross. Is he preaching to a small crowd or a big crowd? How do we know it was a big crowd? Yeah, because 3,000 people responded to the message. And presumably there were many people there who didn't respond to the message. He's speaking to thousands of people. Jewish people. At least somewhat devout Jewish people. And do you know what he did? He challenged them to repent. That's part of his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Let me ask you a question. What did they have to repent of? What was there substantially different in the moral conduct of a faithful Jewish person in Jesus' day with the moral conduct of a believer in Jesus in Jesus' day? What's the difference? Did they have to repent? Fundamentally of their moral conduct? No. There there wasn't, assuming these people were faithful Jews, there wasn't a big gap between their moral conduct and Christian moral conduct. You know what they had to repent of? Their thinking. They previously thought that Jesus Christ deserved death on the cross. That Jesus Christ was a guilty, condemned criminal, who had the curse of God upon him, and that's why he went to the cross. What Peter challenged them to repent of was you used to think this way about Jesus, repent of that, now think this way about Jesus. And I want to challenge you on this. There may very well be within you right now sinful patterns of thought that the Holy Spirit helping you, you need to grab hold of those shine the light of God's word upon them and repent of them and say, God, help me to think your thoughts after you. When we as Christians are only focused on the actions, we never get to the root of the problem. Now, I'm not saying God's not worried about your actions. Obviously, he is. But don't end it there. Don't be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And again, I can't emphasize enough how much God's word has an essential place in all of this. I'm not saying it's the only place, but it's an essential place that God's word has in this. Okay, now we get to this whole thing. When are you going to talk about how can I know God's will for my life? This is what you want to know. Well, right there, it's at the very end of the verse. You see what it says? What's it say there at the end of verse 12? That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I want to introduce into you a paradigm shift. I want you to stop thinking about discovering the will of God I need to find the will of God. I need to discover it. I'm not saying that's completely a bad concept. I just want to challenge you to try a different concept. Stop thinking about finding or discovering the will of God like the dear brother said, and weren't you grateful that he mentioned a magic eight ball just like I did last night? Is that not the sign of God all over this thing? Stop thinking about the magic eight ball kind of thinking You're not trying to find or discover. what You're trying to prove the will of God in your life. Look, I've got a basic understanding for how you can understand the will of God. How you can know it. You ready? Surrender your life, stay in his word, and then just follow wherever God leads you. Now, now, for some of you, this is totally inadequate as an answer. You say, no. No way. Because David, how am I going to know, is it to be this job or that job? This graduate program or that graduate program? This girl or that girl? You know, that, that's the, the one. These are the things, that's not giving me enough guidance. Listen, listen. When you surrender to God, When you're walking in his word, God will guide you along the way. And don't be surprised if there's times and places where God says to you, do whatever you want to do. Now, sometimes we think that finding God's will for our life means a total suspension of our own faculty of choice. But see what Paul says there in that verse? Proving the will of God. Figuring out what it is. You just live your life and you'll prove it out what your life is. I look at my life and critical choices that I've made in my life. And not all of them have been great. Not all of them have gone well. But collectively, all of them have been folded into the will of God for my life. I just see it now in a way that I never saw before. So I'm not worried about God, like, giving me a necessarily set. Now, there are times when God will do that. There are times when God would say, do this and not that, and thank him for it. But I'm not waiting on that. I'm seeking God. I'm living that life. I'm in his word. I'm following after him, and he's guiding me along the way. Now, keep that in mind. I want to go over with you a list from a guy named George Mueller. Anybody know who George Mueller is? George Mueller was an amazing man of faith who, some 150 years ago, by faith, established orphanages in England. Uh, His orphanages were mainly in southwest England in the city of Bristol. And he housed hundreds of orphans, completely free of charge, And the whole work was supported simply by faith and by prayer. And Mueller made it a vow before God that he would never ask people for money. He did make needs known, but he would never ask somebody for money. He just said, I'm not going to ask you for money. I'm going to ask God for the money. And if God talks to you about it, then you'll give. Now, over the course of his ministry he saw, in modern terms, more than $200 million come into his work. All just by faith, never by any kind of appeal or request for funds. An amazing kind of thing. George Mueller was such a remarkable man of faith. One of the things he did in this book that I read was he laid out a several-step plan for discovering the will of God for your life. Would you be interested in that? All right? Here we go. Here's a several-step plan. Number one, completely surrender one's will to God. Surrender your will to God. In other words, Lord, show me what your will is, but I'm really only interested in doing it if the answer is this. That's not surrendering your will to God. Surrendering your will to God is just another way of doing what I just read to you about in Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Present your body a living sacrifice to God. God, what do you want? Whatever. I'll do what you tell me to do. I have to say, to really do that, that requires faith And for some of you, it requires repentance. And here's the repentance that you have to offer up before God. You got to repent of having a bad opinion of God. You think that if you really surrender to God, he's going to guide you in a way that you'll hate. And like God's plan for your life is misery. Say, well, come on, David, didn't you just tell us that you know, there's a theology of suffering and we have to understand that? No, 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 you misunderstand me completely. God's plan for your life is abundant life, joyful life, fulfilled life, I believe it completely. But that doesn't mean every day is wonderful. There's going to be pain and suffering and difficulty along the way. But I tell you, if you believe that it's dangerous to really surrender your will to God, I don't say this to condemn you. I I just say it to, to really help you out. You need to repent of that. You're accusing God of being some kind of monster, of being abusive. Because it's the abuser who says, surrender to me and it's going to be good for me and not for you. God says, surrender to me and it's going to be good for you. I'll always have your best purpose in mind, and it's also trusting that God knows us better than we know ourselves. Have you ever really thought about that? You have an estimation and I 'm going to be talking about this in our fourth session. You have an estimation of your gifts, your talents. Maybe you have a sense of your calling or not. I don't know. We'll talk about that in the fourth session. But can you allow for the truth that God knows your gifts and talents and calling even better than you do? And when you really walk in and live in fulfillment of your gifts and talents and calling, there's nothing greater in the world. Nothing. Not in experience of life. Okay, so that's number one that Mueller listed. Completely surrender your will to God. Now, look, don't get all philosophical on me. What I mean by all philosophical is this. Say, David, how is it possible for me to completely surrender my will to God? I am an imperfect being. I can't do anything perfectly. And there may be things in my life that I haven't surrendered to God, that I don't even know I haven't surrendered to God. How you're speaking existentially, it's impossible for me to completely surrender my will to God. Okay, just forget all of that and surrender your will to God. (laughs) Now, maybe there is an area of your life that you need to surrender that you're not aware of. Okay, great. When you are aware of it, surrender that to God. Just surrender all you know. Don't hold back a known area of resistance to God. Surrender it to him. That was the first thing on Mueller's list. Second thing on Mueller's list, number two, he says, don't leave the results to feelings or simple impressions. If so, I make myself liable to great delusions. Don't do it just by feelings Or simple impressions. The dear sister in the video spoke of the postcard that she found with Croatia on it. Now, if they would have left going to Croatia, Croatia, only upon that they would have been fools. So was it an indication? Yes. But it was not a determinative indication. You, You wouldn't build it on that. That's kind of a, oh, it makes me smile, and okay, God, maybe you're in this. But that's not deciding it for you. Say, no, I'm not going to go on feelings. I'm not going to go on simple impressions. That was number two from you. Okay, are we clear on the first two so far? Any questions about the first two? Now's your chance. All right, number three. Seek the Holy Spirit's will through, or in connection with the Bible. This is what Mueller said, quote, The Spirit and the Word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone without the Word, I lay myself open to the great delusions. Or I lay myself open to great delusions also. So, seek the Holy Spirit's will but not necessarily through an ecstatic experience. Seek the Holy Spirit's will in and through his word. I'm not trying to say that the Holy Spirit won't do some remarkable things in and through his word, or in and through the word of spirit, and then oftentimes combining it with the word of God. One of the greatest experiences we ever had, when I say we, I mean my wife and I, in receiving guidance in God's will, had to do with exactly that point. Um, I was a pastor in a community in Southern California. Uh, This was a church that I had planted. I'd been the pastor of her for 14 years. Uh, The ministry was going well. We were happy and blessed there. Our kids had grown up in this community. Things were going Great. And then, kind of out of the blue, for a few conversations, uh, my wife and I just started praying, and I could say half-heartedly praying. We were praying about the idea of um, going to Germany and starting a Bible college campus there, and uh, which would have been kind of crazy. Things are going great there in California. I've got the church going. The ministry's blessed. Everything's good. Why would I leave this? Why would I take my family to Europe? And do this. Well, we started praying about it. And I tell you, when we started praying about it, God started stirring our hearts. We're like, whoa, this this might be the will of God. We kept praying. The more we prayed, the more we felt confirmed. But we weren't going to go off and do it rashly. I kind of consider this. The more people a decision affects, the more you need to be confident it really is God's will. Things that don't really affect many people, well, you know what? You don't need a lot of evidence that it's God's will for you or not. But if it's going to affect a lot of people, not just you, then uh, be confident. And look, this decision was not going to affect my wife and my kids and my extended family. Obviously, this decision was also going to really affect my church. I was going to have to leave my church. So I better know that it's the will of God. So, We were going to go to Europe that summer for a family reunion with my wife's family in Sweden. We structured it out and we went anyway. We said, let's visit Germany where they want me to come and start this Bible college campus and visit there. We visited Germany. We went to that church. And when we were there, God stirred our hearts even more. It was like, whoa, God's doing something here. Let's see what God's doing. We, we left those couple days in that city in Germany thinking even more, this is God's will. When we got home from that European trip, we're thinking, man, this really seems like the will of the Lord for us. We should do it. But this is what we said. We said, no, no, no. Let's not be in a rush about this. This is a big deal. Let's give two more weeks to really seeking the Lord and trying to discern his will. Because you know what? I mean, maybe, well, let me put it this way. I think it's possible to mishear God's direction. In other words, maybe God's telling us to go to Europe, but maybe not there. Maybe God's telling us he wants to do something else. Let's, let's give it two more weeks to really seek the Lord and, and really do that. Okay, in the midst of those two weeks, my wife, who's generally more spiritual than I am, she says to me, David... We haven't fasted about this at all. I said, you know, you're right. So we decided that the next day we were going to give over to fasting, to seeking God's will in something that we already felt like we had a direction, a determination. The day that we were fasting, seeking the Lord's will about it, um, a phone call came in for me. I was out of the office at the time. They took a message and they said, David, uh, call this lady. And uh, the message was there for me when I came in. So I come in, I look at the message, and look, I'll just be honest with you, it's not necessarily my habit to return a call right away. You know, maybe I think, okay, I'll get to it later this afternoon or something like that. If it doesn't seem urgent, why should I say, okay, I got to do it right now? But for some reason, I looked at this and I said, hey, I'm going to call her right now. So I sat down, and of course, I recognized the name. This was a name of a lady who we knew was a friend, we were on good terms, uh, but they had stopped going to our church a year or two before and were going to another church. No problem with it. It was completely cool. It's completely good. But they were just going to this other church. But what I'm just trying to say is we hadn't had any contact for at least a year or more with this gal. So I call her up. Her name was Karin. Hey, Karin, this is David. Return your call. What's going on? She says, uh, David, in my devotional time this morning, I feel like the Lord gave me a word for you. Of course, I know all the circumstances in our life right now. She doesn't know a thing because nobody knew a thing. We had not spoken a word of this to a person in our church because we wanted to be more sure of the will of God before we revealed anything. Nobody in our church, much less someone we hadn't seen in a year or two. She didn't know a thing about it, but I knew that we were really seeking God's will that day. So David, I think God spoke to me this morning. Um, in my devotions for you, and I just wanted to tell you. Do you want to hear it? I said, Yeah, sure, go ahead. So she said, This is the verse God gave to me for you, and it—I think it's Deuteronomy chapter two, verse four. It says something like this: You've made your way around this hill country long enough. Now head north. Now, where we lived, Simi Valley, California is completely surrounded by hills. It's a valley with hills all around it. Matter of fact, just before I made the phone call, we were looking at a new logo for the church and it incorporated the hill design in the logo. So, I mean, it was very much in my mind, we were in hill country. And again, the verse says, it's from the NIV, you've made your way around this hill country long enough, now head north. And where we wanted to go, was not directly north of us, but it was definitely north. I mean, it was north by maybe even 1,000 miles from where we lived in California. So instantly, I knew that that was God speaking to our situation. But man, I played it cool. I, I d- gave no reaction. I'd go, whoa, that's an amazing. and I said, No, just cool as anything. I said, oh, Karin, that's quite a verse. What do you think it means? And she says, do you really want to know? I said, yeah, I want to know. Tell me what you think it means. She took a deep breath and she said this. She said, I think that God is telling you guys to go to Europe. I think he's telling you to go right away. And I think God's telling you that his blessing is really going to be upon it. And again, I didn't react because we didn't want anybody to know. But I mean, inside, I'm like, wow. That was the Holy Spirit speaking in and through his word. So I just played it cool. I said, hey, well, thanks a lot, Karn. Um, that. <laughs> of course, later, many years later, I said, God really used that. But this is I don't understand. Please understand how that miraculous word of God of guidance worked into the whole thing. Number one, it was confirmation. We were already in the direction. In other words, if God's guidance began with that word from my friend, I I don't know if it would have gone anywhere. Because people have come up to me and give me all kinds of weird prophecies about stuff I should be and stuff I should do. And I'm just like, yeah, whatever. When God says that to me, I'm with you, okay? So understand how this fit in. It fit in in the course of God's work in my life as confirmation of what God has already saying. It was a very powerful confirmation, but it was confirmation of what God had already been saying. And understand this too, I think God gave us unusual confirmation because he was telling us to do something that would affect so many people. And he was giving it to us so that when we told the story to other people, they would know that it really was the will of God. Can I speak honestly with you? Of course I can. It's funny how we use these rhetorical questions that are really kind of silly. We did not need that dramatic word of confirmation. We didn't. I'm not saying that to be boastful, but God had already spoken to us so much that we didn't really need it. But you know who needed it? The people in my church needed it. My family needed it. Other people needed it. And I'm not trying to say that it was of no benefit to us, but we probably would have gone even without that word of confirmation. But it still had an essential role in our lives. But notice, that was the Holy Spirit working in and through his word. If you want to know God's will, get into his word. That was the third one from George Mueller. Okay, so first one. Completely surrender your will. Don't leave the result of feelings or simple oppressions. Third, seek the Holy Spirit's will through connection with the Bible. Number four, take into account providential circumstances. Look, if it's God's will, he's going to open some doors and close some others. Providential circumstances are not the only measure of whether or not something is God's will. But I like how George Mueller phrased that. How did he say it? Take them into account. Take them into account. If it's God's will, take into account providential circumstances. Next, ask God in prayer to reveal his will to me. Have you missed out on that one? Just a very simple asking. Lord, reveal your will to me. Pray about it. And then this is number three, four, five, six... And this is the one that's going to trip you up. Okay, ready? You've done all that? By the way, pretty much what I've all stated is the first five points of Mueller's things, is this anything radical that you've never heard before? You're like, yeah, roll your eyes. Yeah, David. Same talk I've heard from all my youth leaders on how to know the will of God. Anything boring? When's it going to be something new? Okay, here's the new one. Ready for this? To me, this was the gem of what Mueller shared. Number six. Through all of the above, make a deliberate judgment according to the best of my ability and knowledge. After I've done all those above things, make a decision. That's what you don't want to do. You want God to force a decision upon you. You don't want to be responsible for a decision. And so you avoid it. Now look, when we had that Bible college in Germany, um, that was, uh, we started it in 2003. So what's that, 15 years ago? We were there seven years, so that's eight years ago. Things may be different among young people today. So don't take what I'm going to say about young people then to necessarily be true of you guys today. But if the shoe fits, wear it. We saw people, young people, when it came to romance, they were way too spiritual. In other words, it went like this. It was, I know how God's going to bring the woman I'm supposed to marry to me. I'm just going to pray and seek the Lord and he's going to say, that's the one. And then I'm just going to go to her and uh, maybe I won't say to her that you're the one because it'll creep her out. I'll save that like for our third conversation. (laughs) You know, first one, it would just be too creepy. And, um, you know, and uh, God's will is God's will, and that's the one, and he's making the choice for me, and boom, that's it. We encountered a lot of young people who came into our Bible college with that kind of general mentality. And, and what it did was, I, I think that there was actually not really a spiritual reason behind it. I think there was some kind of psychological thing going on in it. I think a lot of these kids came either from broken homes themselves or they saw a lot of it around them. And they number one, they said, I want to be sure that it's the right person. And the only way I can be sure is if God says it. If I leave my choice completely out of it. Oh no, it was nothing having to do with me. Matter of fact, I don't even like this person, but it was God's will for me. (laughs) That shows how purely it was God's will. I can't stand them, but I married them. No, I mean, it almost would get like that. So that, that's kind of, They They felt more secure if they could tell themselves I had nothing to do with it, number one. And then number two, they were just, they were just scared to go forth and put in the work it takes, sometimes vulnerable work, to get to know somebody. And to see if they're the kind of person that you might want to spend the rest of your life with. Not only is it work, it's vulnerable work. It's work that sometimes ends in disappointment. And if I can find a shortcut around that, by just saying, God, shine the shaft of life from heaven upon that one, and she's the one. Then man, boom, that's easy. Listen, I find so much wisdom and what George Mueller says. And I think it matches up perfectly with Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. Put yourself in the place where you're seeking God. You're surrendered to his will. You're doing what he wants you to do. You're all that. And then live out your life and make choices. Let me read you the line from Mueller once again. Because it's so good. He says it exactly like this. He says, through all of the above make a deliberate judgment according to the best of my ability and knowledge. Now, when you do that, is it 100% sure of being right? No. And, and if you are so risk averse that that's kind of what you demand, all I can say is you're going to be in a lot of trouble you're never going to be able to make decisions. Okay, so Mueller says that, and then the next points that he makes, I like just as much. Check out what he says next. You would think that would be the end of it, wouldn't you? Okay, great, I made my decision, that's it, it's done. No, that's not the end of it. Here's the next point he makes. He says, continue to pray about it two or three more times, and if the mind is at peace, Proceed accordingly. So about that job, about that person, about that school, about that ministry opportunity. All right, Lord, I put myself in the right place. I've sought you. I've done all these things. I've surrendered my will. Then now, according to the best of my judgment and my ability, I'm going to tie all that, and I'm going to make a decision. What do you do once you've made the decision? then say, all right, two or three more times, I'm really going to seek the Lord about this. Lord, I've made this decision. Now I surrender this decision to you. Lord, give me your heart and your mind about this decision. And he says, and if your mind is at peace, your heart is at peace doing that, then proceed forth. Look, I don't know about you, but there's been a lot of decisions that I've made where when I think about them, I get filled with anxiety I get filled with apprehension, with nervousness. When I pray about them, all of that disappears. And it's like, whoa, there's something to this. I think about it and I get freaked out. I pray about it and I feel at complete peace. I like that methodology from George Mueller. But it comes back to this. The will of God is for you something good and wonderful and perfect, and he wants you to prove it, to live it out. Stop asking God to help you to live by certainty. And by the way, I understand it, how we want that more than ever when it comes to relationships. We just say, Lord, is there some way you can guarantee me that it'll never go wrong with this person? And you know what? I think if God were to give you an honest answer, what would he say? No. So David, you got to make this decision by faith and then every day afterwards, you need to walk in faith and trust me along the way. That kind of certainty argues against a life Lived by faith. And that's what God has for us. Uh, Now, when I say faith, I don't mean foolishness. Don't you see there's a pretty big difference between all that I've talked about here, Romans 1 and two, the George Mueller thing. There's a very big difference between that and, and, hey, I'll do whatever I want and God bless it along the way and, well, maybe it's good, maybe it's not. I mean, there's a pretty big difference between the two. But I want you all to be absolutely freed to recognize, number one, your mind, your heart, your life can be transformed by what God and his word does in you. That's number one. Number two, that renewed man or woman that you are, you really can walk in the will of God. Are you going to walk in it perfectly? No. There's nothing perfect this side of eternity. We get that. But I'll tell you this. Even the times when you get the will of God wrong, he'll use it. Remember when I was talking about having to repent of the idea that God doesn't want the best for you? You need to come back to that idea. Listen, um. Some of you have the conception that God is like, um, all right, they wanted to honor me in this, they wanted to serve me in this, but they got it wrong. Now they're going to suffer. You know what? That is not the God we serve. If you follow the methodology we've talked about here, and if you make the wrong decision, Do you know what's going to happen? A loving, heavenly father will walk you through it and guide you to the best place in his will after that. You don't have to sweat it. It's not like God's going, ha ha, they chose the wrong one. Now I get to nail him. It's not like that at all. We serve a loving father with that. Questions? Comments? We've got a few more minutes before we break for lunch. Anybody? Yes? In your own story, you talked about your wife's hearts getting stirred. What did that look like? It just felt like a feeling. Now, I, if I could give even more. His, his question is, uh, when in my story, I talked about our hearts getting stirred when we prayed about something. Um, how did that look? I have to give even a little bit more backstory. Because my wife is Swedish, and because we've had contact with Europe and European ministries, it was always in the back of our mind that maybe someday we'd serve the Lord in Europe. And there had been times in ministry where we had said, Lord, do you want us to go to Europe and serve you there? There had been times when maybe even we tried to feel called to Europe. But it just never was there. It just never was there. And we were fine with that. It's like, okay, if, if it is the Lord's will. So that's kind of the backstory. You know, before that. But we hadn't been thinking about it when this opportunity came up. And all I can say is that idea of, of like affirmation, all I can say is that it was a pleasant association with the idea of going there. When we thought about, when we prayed and thought about going to Europe and starting this Bible college in Germany, it wasn't, ooh yuck. It was like, wow, maybe God has that for us. I mean, that's the simplest way I can express it. I'll give you one other thing. In one way, our going to Europe was nothing unusual because my wife was Swedish. We'd spend a lot of time in Sweden. Her sister lived in England. We'd spend a lot of time in England. We had a lot of friends in England. But if you would have asked us before all this happened, David, might you guys be called to Europe? We'd say, yeah, it wouldn't surprise us at all if God called us to Sweden or if God called us to the U.K., The idea of going to Germany was nowhere on the radar, nowhere. So oftentimes when God leads us, and it's funny because I'll be touching on some of these same ideas in the fourth session. Oftentimes when God leads us, it's in a way that is familiar and surprising all at the same time. So the idea of going to Europe wasn't a shock to us. The idea of going to Germany, it's like, whoa, we never thought of that. Other questions? A few more minutes here. Comments? Yes, back there. Hey, that's interesting. The question is, how does the role of wise counsel fit into all this? Because that's something that Mueller didn't address at all in his list. And, and that's good on you for noticing that. Because I, I kind of didn't notice that myself. Um, There's a place for wise counsel, but I don't think it replaces what the Lord might be showing us. It's more in the sense of affirmation or discouragement. Um, When we were going to go to, when we were thinking of going to Europe, and we had pretty much decided, okay, I think we are. It was in those two weeks when we were going to finally make up our mind. Uh, I called three pastors that I feel like they know me and I really respect them, and I asked each one of them what they thought. And uh, it was encouraging to me that every one of them said, "Do it. I think this is great. Go for it." Uh, so, yeah, I think there's a place for us, and it's wise. But we, I think, it's something to be careful with. Honestly, look, uh, some of us, what we do is we go counsel shopping. You know, we, we kind of have a predetermined idea what we want to do and we go around until we find somebody who will tell us what we want to hear and that person is of the Lord and all the people who told us different, man, they're of the devil. <laughs> we have a way of doing that, don't we? So it, it's a piece of the puzzle, I would say that, but it doesn't determine, it doesn't affirm everything, it doesn't deny everything. Yes? Yes, her observation is that the phone call and the conversation I had with that lady, it, it fit into that area of wise counsel. Absolutely. And that, in particular, was spirit-led counsel. Because, look, when somebody has something to you relevant to, again, I emphasize, she had no idea this was even going on in our life. And she didn't know for a couple of months, because we didn't tell her till a couple of months, you know, that God really had a place for that word. Yes, It was hard. It, it was hard, but it, we didn't doubt that it was the will of God. Yeah. No, there were obviously difficult times. Uh, but no, we, we, we really didn't waver in the sense that this is what God wanted us to do. And, and we felt, I'll get to your questions just next. Again, I want to emphasize, I don't think that you should expect such an overwhelming Confirmation as we received in that circumstance. That's why I wanted to point out that I believe that God gave us extra confirmation, not so much for our sake, though it was helpful for us, but mostly for the sake of our congregation and our family. Yeah. Yes? Along the same lines of thinking, the theology of suffering, you had experienced suffering in Europe, which we did. You know what, I would say God has a glorious purpose even in this. And it's not to be despised. Uh, I I would always want to see if there's some thing that may be, you know, in any period of suffering, it's a great time of self-examination. But it shouldn't be excessive self-examination. You know, we examine ourselves and if the Lord speaks to us about something we need to get right, okay, we do that. Um, but it doesn't mean that the suffering is going to go away. And it, that's, so, yeah, these are things that we need to examine. Yes? There's some really good advice I had received from someone one day, which is when we don't. Yes, to remain, how important it is to remain joyful in a good attitude, even if it's not something that you would, that, I mean, that's trusting in the love and the wisdom of our Heavenly Father. All right, one more. Anybody, one more, going once, yes. So you, you touched on the whole Germany thing, you got extra confirmation for, you know, every, not everyday situation, but, you know, normal decisions that we have to make that aren't, you know, life or death and things like that, or liberal congregation, what does confirmation look like in whatever you see in your life experiences? Is it just, is it like the peace of the Lord and, you know, you, you just feel that joy or is there more, is there less? Oftentimes of that. Okay, remember what um, we read in Mueller's list? The last thing he said, make your decision give it, and then... Pray about it two or three more times after that. And if the peace of God is in your heart as you pray about it two or three more times, I I think that that is a common and kind of expected way that the Lord could confirm it.